3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7 o'clock in the morning. Good morning, Inez. Good morning, honey. Good morning. I'm here with a voice that is a little bit crackly, so excuse that. Morning. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, sometimes you just got to yell. Yeah, it was five hours of yelling and then following it up with a whole night of karaoke. So I don't think that was the best idea in the world. Yeah, that sounds hectic. I um, I haven't been doing enough yelling, I don't think. But I've also been doing a lot of thinking about the different ways that we can contribute to organizing and to the movement. Um, and my God, there's a lot of ways. Um, so I... Oh, not totally lost that train of thought. No, there's lots of ways. We sure. got um, we have a big show as usual, um, and an exciting live update coming from Camp Sovereignty from Honey later on. Um, but maybe we'll jump into the rundown. Yeah. So first up, we have uh, Wasim Razvi from Hume for Palestine, and Hume for Palestine is a community action group within Hume Council, presently demanding an immediate closure of a local manufacturer in Campbellfield. Heat Treatment Australia, or HTA. The Defence Department states that HTA provides crucial heat treatment processes for components of F-35 Joint Strike Fighters, which are currently being used by the IOF in the ongoing genocide of Palestinians in Gaza. We're joined today by Hume for Palestine member Wasim and founder of Islamic Research and Education Academy and activist at Alliance Against Islamophobia, where they challenge Islamophobia, assist and empower individuals and communities impacted. Amazing. And after that, we are joined by Amber, who is a white queer trans person based in NARM. And I caught up with them uh, yesterday to talk about autonomous queer and trans resistance against the pinkwashing of cops, corporations and colonialism at Pride in the wake of a successful but brutally policed protest against the inclusion of Victoria Police in the annual Midsummer Parade last Sunday. And at this event, queer and trans community members, my community, were violently assaulted by cops at the march with footage circulating of protesters being slapped and choked by police. An absolute disgrace. And since Sunday, uh, radical queer and trans groups, including Queer Killjoys and Trans Queer Solidarity, have published some really important reflections on exposing pinkwashing and reclaiming queer and trans self-expression from this predatory creep of diversity, diversity and inclusion approaches to interconnected forms of systemic violence. After that... We're going to be continuing the conversation that Fung started on this week's episode of Tuesday Breakfast with Larakia Gurunkung and Gurunjian French writer and performer Laniok about the campaign to return Lee Point to Larakia Care. And in this interview, Laniok and I discuss the history of the Australian and U.S. Defence Forces' militarised occupation of Larakia country and serious concerns about government claims about consultation with Larakia people. Um, yeah. 
And then did you want to talk about... Oh, well, finally, I'll just uh, lead into that. Honey's going to um, give us some updates from Camp Sovereignty, and we're going to hear a clip of Uncle Robbie speaking during yesterday's live broadcast of Bungle's Fire from the camp, encouraging folks to come down. And remember, you can tune into Bungle's Fire from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. every Wednesday on 3CR 855 a.m. and head down to Camp Sovereignty at any time at so-called King's Domain. And um, it's been fantastic to have Uncle Robbie be set up with the outside broadcast to live broadcast from Camp Sovereignty to do his show every week. Um, it's just wonderful to be able to hear him uh, take the incredible work that he does from the studio back into the streets. Um, and all of the political education that he provides at Camp Sovereignty is, is so valuable. I think being able to... Um, you know, share the wisdom that he um, imparts and the like vital force of his <laughs> of his um, activism is really wonderful. And it's great. It's just great to see him like thriving. Um, I know he's had a tough couple of years and it's it's just such a delight to see him be so galvanized and surrounded by a whole lot of people that are um, excited to take the struggle forward. Yeah, 100%. So tune in. We have a great show, important show, and we'll be back with news headlines. Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones, including parents, siblings, extended family, and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. These are the news headlines for Thursday the 8th of February. A bill to strip the Attorney General's power to prevent prosecution of genocide and war crimes in Australian courts has been introduced to the Federal Parliament by Independent Senator Lydia Thorpe. The veto power currently held by the Attorney General means that they block prosecution of crimes against humanity, including, in the past, blocking efforts to seek justice for the Rohingya genocide in Myanmar, and for war crimes against Elam Talon people in Sri Lankan civil war. The Attorney-General's veto of power also allows the government to avoid accountability for Australia's defence and foreign policy, for unjust treatment of First Nations people, and for anti-Palestinian actions, such as recent cuts to aid funding in occupied Palestine. In the announcement of the bill yesterday, Senator Thorpe said, quote, no politician should get to say who can and cannot be held accountable in our legal system, particularly in relation to the utmost heinous crimes like genocide, unquote. These calls for truth and justice covered miss ongoing crimes against humanity in Palestine, with IOF forces killing more than 900 Palestinians since the ICJ ruling ordered them to prevent acts of genocide. Bowed by the staying support of most Western imperialist powers, including Australia, Israel has 
continued this week to directly attack aid convoys, arrest health and aid workers and bomb Rafa, where almost half of Gaza's population has been forced to flee from Israel's genocidal attacks. In other news, with a note that this headline contains mention of a First Nations person who has died. An inquest into the death of a Yorta Yorta and Gunai Kurnai man while on remand at Port Phillip Prison has begun this week. Joshua Kerr died while in custody in 2022, and the inquest has so far heard that prison staff on duty watched Mr. Kerr become increasingly erratic and left him visibly unresponsive for 17 minutes before administering medical treatment. No action was taken by prison staff as Mr. Kerr called out to say he was dying. The inquest also heard from senior Aboriginal cultural advisor to Port Phillip Prison, Roy McPherson, who described difficulties attending to the welfare of First Nations prisoners due to staff shortages and several incidents of racist behaviour by prison officials. And just for listeners who are in NARM at the moment, the coronial inquest into the death in custody of Mr. Kerr is happening uh, every day at the coroner's court. Uh, That's on Kavanaugh Street in South Bank. And the family has asked for people to show up and support. Dajwa Foundation has been doing some excellent coordination of support for the family and to bring community members in to sit in solidarity across this week and next week. Also in headlines... Cops were filmed punching and dragging Pride Parchmost protesters on Sunday after police violently escalated a peaceful protest against police presence at the march. A representative for the civil resistance youth movement who organised the counter-protest said, People have been disrupting police presence at the march for many years and they never expected it to escalate to what it did. People who experienced the majority of violence were people of colour, trans feminine people and those carrying microphones or wearing kafeas. In other news this week, an online Zionist group that includes Australian writers, teachers and academics has been revealed to be organising a takedown of pro-Palestinian publications and activists. Screenshots from the WhatsApp group appear to show an urgent call for action against people involved in Palestine solidarity, specifically calls to make complaints to funders and the university associated with Overland magazine and its writers and editors. And finally, in headlines, a damning assessment has been released detailing state and federal government's failures in effectively implementing the National Agreement on Closing the Gap. The review found the state and federal government's engagement with First Nations communities is tokenistic and that funding is going towards programs that do not align with what communities say will work. First Nations people have continued to call for fundamental challenges that would see secure funding for supporting self-determination and for close-the-gap funding to be enshrined in legislation and directed to First Nations-controlled communities. Now, these have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 8th of February. You're listening to 3CR. We'd also like to mention that I know our headlines may have brought up distressing and difficult, challenging topics for you. So if you do want to speak to someone for First Nations people, you can speak to 13 Yarn. That's 13-9276. And that is 24-7 crisis support. And... Uh, for everybody else, you can call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back with our first interview. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. 
The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voice is broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but Co-Power gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a Co-Power member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and Co-Power today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. And welcome back. Uh, this is our very first interview for today's Thursday Brecky Show. First up, we have Hume for Palestine's Wasim Razvi. And Hume for Palestine is a community action group within Hume Council, presently demanding an immediate closure of local manufacturer in Campbellfield, Heat Treatment Australia, or HTA. The Defence Department states that HDA provides crucial heat treatment processes for F-35 joint striker jets that are currently being used in the ongoing genocide in Gaza. And we're joined by Wasim, who is the founder of Islamic Research and Education Academy and activist at Alliance Against Islamophobia uh, that challenges Islamophobia and assisting and empowering communities. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Wasim. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me here. No, of course. Thank you for coming on the show. I know it's a little bit early. My pleasure. Could we maybe start off with how Hume for Palestine was formed and who is actually in the Hume community? All right. Well, see, it's an interesting group that came up with the current uh, scenario that's happening in Gaza in Palestine. So Hume for Palestine was formed by members from diverse backgrounds, uh, multi-faith um, people living in Hume Council, uh, to be to be precise. Uh, from various religious backgrounds, people from different organizations. Uh, but I guess the main point is residents of Hume and those who are associated with Hume Council region. 
So that's how the, it came into formation. The idea, the purpose seems to be that to take action against the ongoing genocide in Palestine. That's the immediate demand. And also further, it is going to work on a long-term uh, uh, goal, which is to bring an end to the occupation of Palestine and to support the Palestinians and their families living in Hume. There is a significant amount of uh, residents um, who do have that background. Yeah, thank you. I think it's yeah important to mention that I know it is a diverse, multi-faith um, area. I know it's also industrial as well as residential with a range of factories. But I also assume that like the residents and the workers in Camberfield probably didn't know what was happening in their backyard. Uh, what, was, what has kind of been the response from the community to learning about the information about HTA? And then we'll go into a little bit more about HTA. Well, yes. So I, th- I think there's twofold, um, you know, a response here that we came across. One is the residents, the community that lives in Hume. Uh, they were absolutely shocked and disappointed. Um, Hume has residents, as you just mentioned, from war-torn backgrounds as well, including Palestinian families. Uh, also, those who have recently arrived from Gaza live very close to this factory area. Yeah. It's quite distressing and mentally affecting the residents directly. The residents were willing to take action the moment they heard that this facility is here. So that's the response from the the residents that we came across. Then we also came across the workers from the surrounding factories. Mm. They started to inquire about the reason of the protest. And I think that that really hit the target because these protests are awareness campaign as well. So uh, when we informed them about HDA and its direct involvement in the genocide, in, in, in Palestine and the manufacturing of weapons, they too were um, gobsmacked and commended our action and our support. They, 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 they said they will be supporting us against this facility. Um, I, I remember one of the workers actually saying to uh, one of our colleagues that, uh, good on you guys, you know, this is bloody shocking and I wish all the best and hope your campaign is successful. So this, this just shows that, you know, people were very openly supportive of any action against such a such a company, such a manufacturer, right in their backyard. Yeah, thank you so much for outlining that. I think yeah, it's important to mention that, yes, it's residential, it is also industrial, and together there's a lot of community organizing and, and talks that you have to have to build relationships. But it sounds like the community is ready to take action and it's really important and power, powerful to see. I... I know that last Friday, as well as tomorrow, uh, you've held, Human for Palestine has held a rally in front of Heat Treatment Australia factory in Camberfield. Could you tell us a little bit more about why exactly HTA and how they're complicit in the weapons manufacturing of F-35s? Right. So let, let's put it this way. I think it, we, it will be helpful if we can try understand how the weapons industry and how the manufacturing uh, you know, system works. So first, I'll just say you know, why we are protesting against HTA directly. The thing is, the kind of weapons that are being used in Gaza right now, and indeed in all conflicts today, are very highly engineered pieces of equipment. Yeah. A plane such as the F-35 or even F-16 is made up of thousands of parts produced around the world. Now, interestingly, there are about 50 factories in Australia making parts for the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter alone. That's a specific, uh, you know, uh, type of F-35. Now, this includes from, you know, titanium keels made by Lovett in Greensboro to the hinges on the bomb bay doors made by Rosebank in Bayswater. All of these are the metal parts for the F-35 that need to undergo very specific metallurgical treatments 
to bring them up to what is called NATCAP standard, U.S. National Aerospace Defense Contractors Accreditation Program, but before they can be fitted to fighter planes. So in short, HTS facilities in Campbellfield in Melbourne, as well in Sydney and Brisbane, are where this treatments happen. Without these parts and the treatment by HTA on Lara Way in Campbellfield, the F-35s could not fly. So many parts of the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter are made in Australia. This is, this is the concern that, that we have. And these are being used directly to bomb the civilians in Gaza. And we know this is no less killing men, women and children, bombing hospitals, you know, killing um, uh, uh, the journalists, one, uh, one and everybody. So in short, um, HTA has, you know, direct relationship with Lockheed Martin, the overall builder of the F-35, um, and it's providing heat treatment services for the Australian subcontractor manufacturers above as well. So this is one aspect of it. And I'll quickly just, to, you know, draw attention to two other aspects. Yeah, of course, F- F-35s are directly being used by Israel to bomb Gaza. Now, this has been confirmed on December 12th by the head of the Joint Strike Fighter Program in United States Congressional Testimony, which revealed that in the aftermath of October 7 attack, the United States swiftly upgraded Israel's F-35 fighters. And Australia is complicit in it in providing it that the, the parts of it and the treatment required for it. The last part is the Elbit connection. Maybe some of our, our you know, our viewers have uh, heard before about Elbit systems. This is Israel's largest military manufacturer and producers around 85% of Israel's defense forces. Now, it also supplies the surveillance technologies along, the, along with the separation wall and the notorious checkpoints. Now, it is one of the only arms companies in the world who has been divested from by international investment firms due to its involvement in the Israel-Palestine conflict. Now, by any benchmark, this is an evil company. Interestingly, in 2018, Elbit's Australian subsidiary, which is called Elbit Systems Australia, came under scrutiny when the Australian Defence Force stopped using their battle management systems due to concerns that they were being used for espionage by Israel. Now try and understand this close connection between HTA Global and Elbit Systems Australia, that they are seeking to expand its Australian operations, which should be of great concern to any Australian concerned with the ongoing genocide in Palestine. And this is, this is exactly why I think it is crucial um, to, to challenge HTA um, in order to stop the, 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 the genocide in Gaza. Yeah, I think you've laid it out really accessibly, really, uh, really able to understand the clear connection, where it comes from, what impact this has, and how disruptive it could actually be. And as you've mentioned, like HTA... As the Defense Department has described it too, it is a critical choke point and it is a target that is, you know, could be really, really disruptive. And if it the factory closes down, that can have, you know, big impacts on F-35s. I also wanted to bring up the point of the relationship between Lockheed Martin and Elbert. And earlier you mentioned, like, universities or, like, workers... Or maybe, yeah, let me regain my thoughts. (laughs) I think they're going all over the place. I have so much to say about this. But we know that Lockheed Martin and Albert have relationships with universities here in Nam. And the point of, like, weapons industries being so alluring or made to be alluring from university graduates because they pay really highly and have easy, accessible 
placements for like engineering students or people that work in aerospace. That's an immediate connection as well. And we, you know, here in Campbellfield, here in Nam, we're not um, we're not divest from it. It is directly impacting the universities that we work in, the communities that we're in as well. Right, very true, and and I think that that is also you know very alarming, very concerning because what's happening is it's spreading its feet across the the, the community here, and when when somebody is sort of concer- you know challenged for for their presence, for their involvement, and then having this sort of lobby, having this sort of impact on the entire community in different streams is something you know to be alarmed for all Australians, not just in relation to this current genocide, but we don't want anything to be manufactured from Australia or anyone being utilized or any of our skills being utilized for mass murder for war crimes anywhere in the world and you know just just sorry to sorry to add this point but you know when we when we said never again in the past after the holocaust of the jewish community and we said never again when we saw the aboriginal and australian indigenous population being massacred when we said never again we mean our land our resources our skills do not be utilized for similar crimes in future, never again. Yeah, 100%. And I think it's an ongoing commitment. And, you know, I hear it when you speak, when you talk about Hume for Palestine, that it is a ongoing commitment that's going to be lifelong, um, particularly with everybody that is currently involved or who will be involved. So I definitely hear that in your voice. I think... Just to wrap up, I know that the rally is happening tomorrow. Could you tell yeah. us more about kind of the continuation of the rally? Where is it and yeah. what can we expect? What are the demands? Right, sure. So, see, um, we, we did this rally twice already on Fridays. And when we did that, um, we had a good turnout. We, we saw the HTA facility being shut down for the day. And that just shows that, you know, that's their, that they're not able to face the community. Uh, when we are raising the concern, we wanted to meet their um, in charge or, or the manager there, but they refused to meet. So we want to just raise our concerns that we have uh, in relation to this. So that's just what has happened in the past. We had hundreds of local residents who turned up and, and raised the concern. Now, this is going to happen again tomorrow, the Friday. Uh, we're going to have the protest at 11 a.m. right outside the HTA outlet, which is on Lara Way in Campbellfield. Now, what we want from the community is we want everybody to create more awareness. That's one. How do you do that? You talk to people around you. You talk to your neighbors, friends, workmates, whatever it is. So the, the, the community is aware that there is a facility in our vicinity, in our region, which is directly involved in the genocide of Gaza, which is, in short, having blood on their hands. The second is to sign the petition. We are forwarding, uh, raising a petition uh, to the local council, uh, which, which actually did a couple of uh, months and years ago as well. They, they, the local council in, uh, in uh, Hume, they actually uh, petitioned, the, the local council itself actually demanded that uh, you know, Australia be a signatory and not uh, get involved into nuclear weapons manufacturing across the globe or anywhere, including any of the, 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 the places in Australia. So it just shows that the local councils have been active in the past. The local councils also signed um, when the Ukraine-Russia conflict uh, took place. So we are demanding that, you know, the community sign the petition in order to raise concern with the local council, with the local MPs and uh, the politicians. The third is to join, come down and join the rally. Uh, that is where you will hear more about it. You will work together as, as a community and we will be able to demand and get our demands fulfilled um, together. Um, this peaceful rally, um, we, we, the whole idea, the purpose of it, we want to shut down the HDA. 
So it might sound radical, but this is what we cannot let a, a blood, a, a, you know, a weapons manufacturing outlet in our backyard. We don't want weapons to be manufactured from factories in our neighborhoods, which is currently contributing to the genocide. Hey, that's not a so radical demand at all. That's very reasonable. And yep. I think having the rally tomorrow have, definitely will help bring more awareness to it. But as you said, talk to the people around you, talk to your communities, show up. Um, but I'm sure there's lots of ways to support as well. And yeah, I'm just wondering if you had just like a final word to say to the listeners before I let you go. Right. Sure. See, I think our, our conscience as, as humans, you know, uh, we, we are a people, we are a community who respect life. And I, be I believe when it is absolutely clear through the International Court of Justice, ICJ, that there is an, a genocide that is taking place in, in, uh, in Palestine right now, I think we all as humans, we all as Australians, we all as Hume Council residents, we have a responsibility here. We cannot let, um, you know, genocide take place by being complicit in it. And one of the ways is to raise our voice, to talk about it, to create the awareness for the plight of the Palestinians, and to make sure that Australia as a country, as a society, does not become complicit in this genocide. We have a responsibility to be the people on the right side of history, and we have an opportunity here. Amazing. Thank that you so much. It. You're welcome. Thank yeah, it was a very powerful, important interview. I learned a lot, and I hope our listeners do. Please show up to the rally on Friday tomorrow, 11 a.m. at 43B Laraway Campbellfield, and we'll also have the show notes uh, where you can find those links as well. But hope you have a gentle rest of your day, Wasim, and thank you for coming sure. on the show. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you. thank you. You have a good day. You too. And that was Wasim Razvi, who is from the Hume for Palestine Community Action Group within Hume Council, presently demanding an immediate closure of the local manufacturing Camberfield Heat Treatment Australia, which provides the heat treatment process for components for F-35s. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, and it's currently 7.30. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Kamanacha on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Annika Wall this week. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And now we're going to hear a conversation that I had yesterday with Amber, who's a white queer trans person based in NARM. And we spoke about autonomous queer and trans resistance against the pinkwashing of cops, corporations and colonialism at Pride in the wake of a successful but brutally policed protest against the inclusion of Victoria Police in the annual Midsummer Parade last Sunday. Now, at this event, queer and trans community members were violently assaulted by cops at the march, with footage circulating of protesters being slapped and choked by police. 
Since Sunday, radical queer and trans groups, including Queer Killjoys and Trans Queer Solidarity, have published some important reflections on exposing pinkwashing and reclaiming queer and trans self-expression from the predatory creep of diversity and inclusion approaches to interconnected forms of systemic violence. And RISE have consistently called for a boycott of Midsummer, given the festival's pinkwashing of policing, Australia's immigration detention system, and the images of Australia's major political parties. So um, I really appreciated Amber making the time to have this conversation, and I hope that this resonates with all of our queer and trans community tuning in today. First of all, thank you so much for making the time to speak with me. I feel like we have this discussion or some version of it every single year. No worries. Glad to be here. Yeah. I mean, it does feel as we sort of reach the end of every year and leading into uh, the summer months, queers in NARM are consistently coming up against the encroachment of corporations, of policing, um, of, you know, the military industrial and detention complex on spaces that are supposed to be, I don't know, sites of queer life and pride and joy. And so I was wondering if we could maybe start off by hearing just a bit about the sort of exhaustion of having to have this fight every year around um, corporate pride and around Midsummer. Yeah, I think, I think I'd reframe things a bit. Because I think what is exhausting, I guess, isn't necessarily like being in solidarity with one another like we were on Sunday. Like it is these, it is is like the pinkwashing and the ongoing violence of living in a highly unequal, violent, settler colonial society. So I guess, yeah, I think like people involved in the action on Sunday took a lot of energy from it. And I guess sometimes I find it more exhausting when it feels like nothing is happening in a sense, because we're demoralized around taking action, whether that be on the streets or care work away from the streets, all these different ways of building struggle. So I think, yeah, the tiredness is like, yeah, life in these, in like a colonial capitalist transphobic system but I think there is power in when we come together on the streets or across the community. A hundred percent. And it was so powerful to witness, you know, community autonomous resistance from, yeah, from members of the queer and trans community. It's always the most marginalized that are on the front lines of upholding this resistance, especially trans women and, you know, people of color. And it is really powerful to see that uncompromising um, opposition to having, you know, to having these violent systems upheld and reproduced through events that are purportedly meant to um, represent and be safe spaces for queer and trans people. Um, But then undoubtedly, um, as you've mentioned, there is, you know, this sort of care work and and community organizing that happens on the side. and, And sometimes that that's because, you know, there's nothing else like we have to look out for each other. Um, and there is also immense harm that's caused by things like um, police crackdowns and brutality, um, as we saw on the weekend, too. Yeah, like what we saw from Victoria Police 
was Victoria Police being restrained, and that's their that's the that's the comment of 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 police boss Shane Patton, who remarkably had a press conference later in the day, the first time ever after a Pride March disruption. Such was how badly disrupted uh, Pride was um, by by us acting autonomously. And, yeah, I think you mentioned stuff around police violence. And I think it's good to put it in context that this was, like, police being restrained in some ways. The Pride March is, like, a public relations, relations things for police. Like, the, the, like, the hundred or so police that are officially in the march, they don't have their weapons. So I think that's, like, a big thing about restraint. Like, police, to inflict violence, which they are specialists in, they require... they require their weapons so so like really seeing the corporate media all the stuff around the violence that that flips the reality that it was police that repressed the protest that we had at pride march on sunday at midsummer against police violence so in solidarity with you know the quotidian violence of policing in victoria that happens all the time and it is something that yeah as a white queer trans person i don't face the brunt of but we still know that still we face some police violence so, and there's particularly like high profile examples around the Posey Parker demonstration on March 18 last year where police protected the Nazi transphobe coalition and later on that time protected uh, effectively protected reactionary and fascist violence by uh, like telling local councils to uh, on police advice, cancel drag story times. So in terms of where I'm going with that, I think, yeah, policing is violence. Like, it's differential really applying across, like, your social location or whatever. And I think for too long we've just, like, sat by and haven't come together to challenge, like, the pinkwashing that we, saw, that we see every Pride March and in other places. And it means that people invest in this mythology that stronger relations with police will actually bring us safety when in reality it's police that make us unsafe at protests and any struggle for liberation police are conservative repressive force that uphold reaction and fascism so so this was about challenging these narratives around police like queer and trans cops are cops and they still still bash you at protests they still silent in terms of police violence and black deaths in custody they they are just cops so all this i guess police propaganda that has been successful in many ways in like uh together with like the more white conservative politics over the last few decades in terms of yeah just going along with like the white comforts of like trying to live in a capitalist society is stuff that's needs to be challenged and collaborating with the police excludes queers and it just upholds the violence of, all, of the system. Totally. And, you know, we, we sort of touched on the issue of pinkwashing, which I'd like to talk a little bit more about, but specifically in relation to the cops, just to tie this part of the conversation off. Um, it is a PR exercise for Victoria police to be there and, you know, as we've seen with so many different forms of autonomous community resistance, including things like the WebDoc picket, 
police are there to uphold the private property regime of this settler colony. And as well, they play a coercive role in in maintaining, you know, the dominance of the cis-heteropatriarchy. And so the notion of diversity and inclusion in the police force and folding cops into uh, sort of pride march and that kind of thing is really just opening up further avenues for the, you know, for the police and for the violence of, of the state to market itself as inclusive and progressive when actually, as we can see, things are, you know, the function of the police is, is extremely regressive in terms of um, social justice. Uh, I wanted to turn to the issue of corporations as well and their um, pinkwashing through participation in Pride. And so I'm thinking about some of the major sponsors of Midsummer, including NAB, Woolworths, uh, Amazon, which is also a BDS target. Um, could you comment on that? Yeah, sure. I'll comment on the corporations second because there's stuff in your preamble that I'd like to address before I get onto the corporations and that aspect of Midsummer's pinkwashing. I... I think, yeah, it's good to put this in the context of different struggle because, yeah, for example, the like the picket at WebDoc, queers, women, trans people overrepresented in that picket and keeping that picket alive. And it really shows how to have like a reactionary force in a pride march is just against any struggle for liberation. And... Yeah, this whole idea of progress, I think a lot of these narratives, are like this idea of progress, we heard from the Minister for Equality that oh, things are progress, we have like LGBT cops now. Whereas, really, we need to like, I need to, I think it's good to draw from a different understanding of that. And that is like that things have been rearranged. And this is something I've learned from Dean Spade, that having like inclusion of cops into Pride March, into the, like, and, and, and there being LGBT cops is just a rearrangement of things in this capitalist society. It doesn't mean like the violence has stopped. It's just been rearranged. So you just have transphobia working in a way that also can mean that um, it's not that many trans cops, but it means you can be bashed by a trans cop and that can be experienced as transphobic as well. Or it means that like transphobia isn't just about like about pronouns. Even if your pronouns get respected in some way, it's just about uh, the differentiating labor market and like who is excluded and like downwardly pushed in the labor market and these things. Um, so we really need to undo the idea of this progress progress that's in our heads around like what the state cultivates around that. And I think that goes into some of what you mentioned about corporations and pinkwashing because. Yeah, we have all these corporations like NAB, Woolworths and Amazon. These are all corporations that make billions of dollars in profit. And who's that profit go to? It goes to the ruling class. It doesn't go for working class queers. It goes to um, the balance of the society, really. And Midsummer in its propaganda claims, oh, it's, it's not about that. It's about supporting people in these workplaces. But that's not true. These, these corporations sponsor Midsummer. They partner with Midsummer. They provide Midsummer with money. Seventy percent of Midsummer's money is corporate and private donations, and in exchange, we see them just like um, pinkwash the inequality that they help. They that are, that is like ex 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 
yeah, they pinkwash the inequality that is ex- existential to like the operation of a corporation because it's about profit. It's about exploitation of workers, and that's inherently opposed to queer workers. So we can talk all we want about, oh, it's great, like, there's rainbow flags on the store, there's rainbow flags. People march, like, some corporation dress up in rainbow flags, but it doesn't actually change the fundamental exploitation that's going on in the workplace. And connecting back to labor market stuff, it is the reality that queer and trans people and in relation to class, race, and ability face downward mobility in the workplace in terms of income. Um, and that, and, and at the same time, we have like these corporations marching down as if they're not like a key enforcer of that, that hierarchy and inequality. So that's the absurdity of how like things are being rearranged in 2024 compared to like, you know, before when homosexuality was like, was criminalized, criminalized in terms of um, different laws, particularly affecting like trans women, gay men, but also the invisibility of like queer cis women in terms of um, trying to make her life in those criminalized times. Thank you so much. No worries. Thanks for having me. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. And we're back on Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. You just heard a chat that I had with Amber, who's a white queer trans person based in NARM. And we were speaking about autonomous queer and trans resistance against the pinkwashing of cops, corporations and colonialism at Pride in the wake of a successful but brutally policed protest against the inclusion of Victoria Police in the annual Midsummer Parade last Sunday. Now, I want to reiterate that Rise have consistently called for a boycott of Midsummer, given the festival's pinkwashing of policing, Australia's immigration detention system and the images of Australia's major major political parties. And um, I also want to say, trust us, that our pink dollars are better spent on local initiatives that genuinely support our communities. This includes Beyond Bricks and Bars, fundraisers organized by Husk Housing Support, and on the vital work that RISE does for queer and trans ex-detainees. So we will have all of the information about how to donate in our show notes, and I highly encourage that you do. And now we're going to go to our next interview. And this is also a chat that I had earlier this week with Larakia Kungarakan Gurunji and French writer and performer Laniok, who joined me to continue the conversation started with Fung on this week's episode of Tuesday Breakfast about the campaign to return Lee Point to Larakia Care. 
In this interview, Laniuk discusses the history of the Australian and U.S. Defence Forces militarised occupation of Larrakia country and serious concerns about government claims to consult with Larrakia people. And you can sign the petition to return Lee Point to Larrakia people's care by following the links in our show notes and also watch some of the storytelling by Larrakia people about their connections to country and what makes Lee Point so significant on Laniuk's Instagram, which we'll have links to as well. So really encourage listeners to follow up with our show notes later on today and uh, to sign that petition before the March 31st deadline of the stay on works by Defence Housing Australia, which you'll hear about now. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So maybe we could start off um, by hearing a little bit about you. So where you're speaking from, if you want to introduce yourself a bit. Oh, wow. Well, my name is Laniuk. I'm a Larakia Kungarakan Gurindji in French political creative. Um, and that was an important distinction for me to make in my art practice because I really feel that my, the poetry and the creative writing and um, I'm now moving into documentary and film, you know, my art practice is a key strategy of survival and resistance. As an Aboriginal person, I really believe it's probably one of the most powerful tools that, you know, I have in my toolkit um, for truth-telling um, and for fighting for land, culture, and the future of my people, really. Yeah, absolutely. And there's um, definitely a dimension or so many dimensions there that aren't captured in things like, you know, your sort of sterile academic report about why uh, sites need to be saved. Like, there is um, there's so much rich like cultural resonance in the storytelling that you've even done through the campaign and through speaking with and interviewing Larkia women about their relationships to to Lee Point. So I thought, you know, to to open up the conversation, we could talk a little bit about uh, the operation of the military industrial complex on Larkia country because that operation itself is contingent on this continued violent appropriation and transformation of Aboriginal land. And we know that Larrakia country has long been impacted by the entrenched presence of the ADF or the Australian Defence Force. So I was hoping you could provide maybe a little bit of context. You know, you don't really need to go into specifics, but more about the kind of coloniality of military presence on Larrakia country. The... Australian Defence Force and the American Defence Force, which has a, a growing presence um, in the north and in Darwin, you know, it it plays a really large role in the colonial imagining and narrative around Darwin in particular. Um, you know, my name, so my name Laniuk is actually from my grandmother's um, country, which is a neighbouring to Latakia country where Darwin City is situated. It, it um, shares a border with Latakia country. And Laniuk is actually a an area on Kungarakan country. Um, and it has this beautiful fresh water. It's just like this gorgeous oasis. You're not actually supposed to swim there. Um, they call it Berry Springs. But when you Google Berry Springs, you can find this um, brochure, this tourist brochure about Berry Springs. And the leading narrative of that area was that it's a space of, uh, it was a space of, recreation and relaxation for you know the Australian military um and it it's just it it's the dominating narrative on our lands um there is not a 
a very strong presence of our storytelling, of our lands, of our history. It's really centered around the military. And even today, outside of, you know, a historical context, but in the present moment, Darwin is currently being built for the fly-in, fly-out community of the military and of the mining companies as well. So, you know, the cost of living is excruciating. It's painful. It's mm. really hard for um, Darwin families, for Latakia people, for Aboriginal families to um, to keep up with the cost of living because we're sort of contending with, you know, a, a government paycheck um, to the military and to the mining companies. Um, and so we're getting pushed further and further out into the fringes of our own community, of our on our own lands. Um, and we're seeing that happen at Lee Point where, you know, the where the priority is to build 800 houses on sacred Latakia, beautiful lush land with ceremonial sites and dreaming connections. And that land is being prioritized to build 800 houses for military personnel, private investment, and for international buyers as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I was also thinking as you were talking about the the fact that Darwin uh, also occupies, I guess, like a, a space in, in the Australian national imaginary of Australia's own invasion anxieties when actually it's this site of continued invasion and appropriation of Larrakia country. Um, and yet, you know, there's still this World War II era resonance of, of fear about invasion and the need for a military presence in that place, which I think, you know, continues to be sustained through things like this, this housing initiative. So, Basically, last year, Defence Housing Australia, I believe, made plans to establish 800 dwellings for military personnel on Lee Point, which were pretty swiftly approved by Federal Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek. So can you talk about this kind of rushed decision and varying responses from the local community? Because I know that this then led to demonstrations, which led to the arrests of protesters, including Larrakia people last July, who were fighting to save the site. And there, you know, there's been some real pushback, but also a bit of complexity around decision-making at um, at the time of the proposed plans. During the interviews with Latakia people, speaking about um, Lee Point, I spoke to one of my sisters, actually, and I was speaking to her about Lee Point and this, this sort of frustration around consultation. And, you know, she just sort of looked at me and she was like, I don't think Latakia people have ever been properly consulted about anything that's happening on our land um, and it is really devastating uh, to be on your own country and to watch the destruction the constant daily destruction of your ancestral lands without any regard to how devastating an impact that that plays on our culture on our futures on our children on our languages on our ceremonial sites like there there was minimal um, very, very minimal consultation to pass um, this this destruction of that mm. area. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately. You know, when we are talking about consultation for the proposed destruction of Aboriginal land, and when we're talking about consultation with community, at the moment it's really being upheld by colonial standards of what consultation means. It's not coming from an Indigenous um, standpoint of what it means to be in true relationship, true consultation. You know, there are a number of Latakia families, there are, you know, thousands of individual Latakia people, and every single one of us cares about that land. 
and cares about that land in a way that I don't think that the Australian government understands. We're not talking about being attached to something for a nostalgic purpose. We're talking about something that is interwoven into a very fabric of being. So when you are going to, you know, bulldoze an area of land that consultation with Latakia people has to be meaningful. It's not a box-ticking situation. It really involves long-term relationship building and understanding. And there's, you know, a real clash between the Australian government and an Indigenous worldview. Mm. We don't have something that sort of meets in the middle and brings us together to be in right relationship. Um, and there are a lot of efforts on the part of the Australian government at the moment in time to be in right relationship with Aboriginal people, particularly in the Northern Territory, which has such a conservative government and has held a conservative government for so long. Yeah, and also, um, as you responded there, I'm thinking about the fact that so many consultations, um, you know, every time I say that, every time you've said that, I'm sure listeners can can fill in the air quotes around consultations, but the that these processes, you know, they're extremely time limited, they're extremely selective, and they also very often function as an opportunity for bureaucrats to come say, we have these plans, uh, yes, no, and then to just go ahead and do it anyway. Uh, And, you know, count consultation is the fact that they have spoken to at least one person, whether or not they agreed. Um, And so, it's so important for people outside of these processes to actually realize that there's there's no effort to be in good relation with Larrakia people throughout these uh, these so-called consultations. And I guess I wanted to to get your thoughts as well on on the fact that you know based on those extremely deep and intangible kind of connections that Larrakia people have to to that country, can you speak to the sort of significance of Lee Point for? both, you know, the the dwelling and the, the cultural and political continuity of Larrakia nationhood, which I know you've captured through some really beautiful audiovisual storytelling through this campaign. In one of the interviews that I did, I sat down with one of my uncles and one of the first things that he said, he held up this tissue that I had handed him and he said, you know, you've given me this tissue for my tears and I don't have any tears left to cry. And the conversation that followed was really just one of continual heartache um, as he, across his lifetime, has watched his country be destroyed in front of his eyes. And I think, you know, there's something very... There's something very interesting happening in Darwin at the moment because we're watching a capital city be built in a way that we can see the effects of colonisation taking place in real time. And it, it... it really, you know, is a, a reminder for the heartache that, you know, Wurundjeri people and Bunurong people um, must be carrying in their bodies as well to be at this point of the the building of cities on their lands. You know, what has happened to Wurundjeri people is happening to Latakia people. We are losing access to our lands, access to our ceremonial sites, access to our food, access to our dreamings, access to our waterways, access to our creeks. We're, we're losing these things daily. Um, and it it happens in less obvious ways. You know, it might just be that there was a suburb that was built through a path that we once walked across to get from one space to another and now we can't get from one space next to another because there's a suburb sitting right in the middle there 
Um, and so when we're talking about Lee Point, what this campaign has taught me and what has shifted in me is that the significance of Lee Point is a, is a, I think it's a crucial moment for Darwin, for the Northern Territory government and for, you know, the, the people of Darwin to really make a commitment to the care of Latakia people, language and culture. This is quite a significant site for us culturally. It holds a lot of um, rich, diverse ecosystem. There are endangered um, animals, birds, marsupials that live in that location, as well as migratory birds. There's, um, you know, turtle locations across that coast and beautiful, rich crab um, ecosystems as well. It's such a beautiful site and it holds so much value beyond the colonial imagining. That's just like, oh, we can make a few million dollars out of this and they're unable to see the deep wealth that exists on that land that exists for everyone that exists forever um and so i think it's a really crucial moment for the people of darwin for the darwin um government and for the northern territory government to realize actually what a beautiful and important location that is and I, I've been saying to people, you know, you won't find Latakia culture anywhere else in the world. This is an invaluable site for us, but also for the wider Darwin population as well. And the people of Darwin, lovely point. People go there daily to fish. People go there daily to rest. People go there daily to walk their dogs. This is something that everyone can benefit from. Um, and... Unfortunately, Defence Housing Australia and the Northern Territory government is choosing to prioritise money and to prioritise military and to prioritise, you know, construction over the enrichment of everyone's lives. We're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is eight o'clock in the morning and you just heard Larakia Gungarakan, Gurundji and French writer and performer Laniuk speaking with me earlier this week to continue the conversation that was started with Fung on this week's episode of Tuesday Breakfast about the campaign to return Lee Point to Larakia Care. And in this interview, we talked about the history of the Australian and U.S. Defence Forces militarised occupation of Larrakia country and serious concerns about government claims to consult with Larrakia people. Now, we'll have the link to the petition to return Lee Point to Larrakia people's care in our show notes. And we'll also have a link to Laniuk's Instagram, where there's been some incredible audio vision audiovisual storytelling by Larrakia people about their connections to country and what makes Lee Point so significant to them. Now we're going to go to a track. This one was released on the 4th of December by Nungar and Narm-based artist Bumpy. This is Overdrawn. Been keeping shy and saving and sleeping on my own thing. Feels like we mended our time, cause you're really taking notice on me. 
Financially give myself away I currently got currency Why you asking me to financially give myself away And that was Bumpy with Overdrawn. And now we're going to hear a little clip of Uncle Robbie Thorpe speaking during yesterday's live broadcast um, from the camp, from Camp Sovereignty, encouraging folks to come down. I believe uh, this conversation is with Mercedes Zanker. Yeah, we're down here at Camp Sovereignty and um, uh, we've got our fire burning. Uh, Hopefully every Wednesday we can uh, actually broadcast out of here. It's a great little space. Um, people come up um, randomly, get some good uh, viewpoints right across. That's all happening, folks. Uh, we're, um, we're getting our fires in the ground, our law, our place to heal, and, um, you know, our day is coming, folks. Sooner or later, we're, we're going to be in international court um, sorting these, these matters, long-standing matters out for our people. Uh, we're, we're, our NACPA nightmare has been going on for the last 250 years. So 
want to see the end of that. If um, the focus is on these issues now, and, and it was interesting to see, well, I think it's a bit of a watershed moment in international law when South Africa actually took uh, Israel to court. I think that's um, going to open up the whole playing field a little bit and hopefully give us an opportunity to do what we need to do. So um, I've got um, Mercedes here joining me and hey, she on. also does a program on Freesia. What's, what's the name of your program? Uh, it's called Uprise Radio and it's on uh, every second or every first and third Wednesday uh, at 5.30 and but it's always nice to jump on. It's good to be up here at Camp Sovereignty and thanks for, and the, you know, after the ceremony last night. And it was really great listening to um, Georgina and I got to catch Grudula's interview as well. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of what he was talking about was echoing what you were saying at the ceremony last night about, you know, it's uh, land back means that it's that the land is for, for everyone and, you, you know, you're going to be protecting it. And also Grudula was strong about uh, how the fire empowers not just you, but others, others around you. And um, he's talking about his whole tribe being empowered by the fire. They've been there for nearly more than two years. Yeah. Nearly three years. So something in it, folks. And um, hopefully we can maintain this place here. And I think it's really looking good and that we can have a, a permanent fire here uh, where the, the, top, the whole community can um, have access to that sort of Aboriginal medicine and healing as well. Absolutely. And for people to come and learn and to hear, you know, firsthand what, what happened here. I mean, you know, it is a, it's a burial ground here. It's a special, you know, it's a, it's a sacred place. And to come here and feel that and to, to, to understand that as, you know, as a small part of a much larger history of genocide in this country is, yes. is important for people to come and listen to. Most people wouldn't know that the Botanical Gardens was the former Aboriginal Reserve. Uh, it's got a lot of history. In fact... Where we're sitting here was where um, some totem poles were set up for probably more than 10 years, which I didn't know much about. I've never actually seen them. When we lit our fire, we actually lit the fire right in the middle of where those totem poles were. Ah, true. So I, that was just a freak of nature. It's also the, um, uh, a lot of the remains um, that were in the museum are buried here as well. It's, mm. And there's a plaque is on a rock. I'm not exactly sure what date it was. I think it was mid-80s. I was here that day when they placed... Uh, they, they got the uh, the remains out of the museum and the universities, I think, and it was after a long battle to do that. And um, they got the number of our people and they're buried here on this site. So makes it a makes it a burial site for people, an important mm-hmm. place. But the whole history of these these gardens... Is uh, very significant, and now we're looking at um, now we've got their foot in the, we've got their foot in the door with our fire. We're looking at um, taking a bit further and building a um, a cultural interpretation centre, where, uh, which made we a number of jobs for co- Aboriginal mm-hmm. people to interpret this site, yeah. and also to look after and maintain. Well, like I envisage that we won't be a permanent flame, and we can um, and we can talk about that, but. Yeah, we have to have it going all the time. It's when we need to do ceremonies mm. and um, to bring people in. The fire, the fireplace is is actually the the, you know, the place of doing business and law for our people and and healing and many other applications of it as well. 
And that was a little clip of Uncle Robbie Thorpe speaking with Mercedes from Uprise Radio um, yesterday during the live broadcast of Bungel's Fire from the camp, encouraging folks to come down and talking about the importance of the site. And now we're joined by Honey with updates from Camp Sovereignty. Honey came here this morning from Camp Sovereignty to speak with us. Um, And yeah, I'd just like to, first of all, hear a little bit about what it's been like down there. Um, yeah, it's been really beautiful. I've been there every day since we reestablished the space on January 26th. Um, it's, it's been great. Um, seeing more and more people come in, um, especially people that are just passing by and you engage them and then they come back again and Mm. again, um, and kind of like building community, um, yeah, in a way that's, I don't know, it seems a bit rare, at least for me, to like really extend outside of your usual circles. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the space, it's yeah getting more and more established uh, now that we have the fire permit. Um, I think that's made a, a big difference. Everyone's like really happy about that. So yeah, I think 120 days and yeah, we'll see what happens in that time. Um I'm trying to think what else. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just thinking about, like, you mentioned the fire permit, and I remember, um, I mean, I wasn't, I didn't have the privilege to be there at the time, but I remember the original establishment of Camp Sovereignty was around the Stolen Wealth Games, and um, there was this big drama um, of, you know, bringing in a fire crew to extinguish the flame at Camp Sovereignty because there was no permit um, and it was deemed, like, unlawful at the original um, iteration of the camp. So reestablishing it, um, you know, it's, it's annoying to have to go, to go through the sort of, like, colonial bureaucracy to get permission to have the fire going, but at least it means that, um, you know, this is insulated and, and protected as a space for at least the next little while um, to keep the fire burning and to keep people coming down. And it's just been an incredible side of political education because, I mean, you know, for folks at 3CR, like we all know that Uncle Robbie has had incredible yarns like over the years and, and just, you know, talking himself about his own political analysis of ongoing genocide and occupation in the colony. But um, how has it been to, to see him sort of, use that space as, as a site for political education? Um, yeah, it's been amazing. We do um, ceremony every night around 8.30, like a sundown ceremony. And during that time before the smoking starts, Uncle Robbie and Kieran as well will usually, you know, speak and invite anyone else to speak. And it's, yeah, it's really beautiful to see you. Um, yeah, just so much knowledge being shared. And, of course, Uncle Robbie is just like amazing and knows so much about everything. <laughs> um, yeah. And people, yeah, just, and he's just, I'm just amazed by how much energy he has to like constantly engage and like be educating people more and more. And he's been doing this for decades. Mm. Um, and yeah, still will take the time, even if someone is like, I don't know, it doesn't seem super receptive or something. Like I've seen people like really turn around with him talking to them and be like, wow, like, I really didn't know that. Um, yeah, yeah, it's really amazing. And he's, I think he's feeling a lot better now that, like, just being outside so much and being around the fire. Um, I think for a lot of people as well, like, it's kind of a rare situation that you get to have a campfire in the middle of the city. Um, and yeah, just 
in this very amazing and strange context, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And, like, I think, you know, we can't um, overstate the significance of being able to, you know, be in conversation with such, you know, staunch voices and, like, veterans of um, black activism in this place uh, because you know, Uncle Robbie has been in this fight for such a long time and has been doing so much work um, around sovereignty and around raising awareness about, um, you know, as he talks about the sort of magnitude of crime scene Australia. Um, So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the sorts of activities that have been on at Camp Sovereignty and what is coming next. Yeah. So this week we've, we've had a few activities. We've had workshops um, we've had art days. Um, yesterday we had a nuclear free update, which was had a really good turnout and was really nice. Um, but we do movie nights. We've had two this week and a few last week, so documentary screenings. Um, I think last night was Vixen that hosted that. Um, and, yeah, we kind of welcome anyone that wants to host an event that's in the spirit of Camp Sovereignty. Just contact one of the pages or just come down and speak to someone there um, because it's like, yeah, a big part of it is just education. Um, yeah. And we're hoping to hopefully have a music event soon, maybe by the end of the month, but we'll see how it goes. Yeah. You should get, uh, MC Shirley Hood to come present. She can MC the night. I mean, this is me, uh, just shouting her out it as an incredible MC. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe she will come down. Um, yeah. Cause there is just... There's so much kind of when we sort of look at the the scale of colonial violence um, in this place uh, in occupied Palestine, um, all around the world at, w- with our sort of closest neighbors in West Papua, uh, there is so much work to be done, and that work requires sustained political education and community building. And it really seems to me that camp sovereignty is kind of a site to to be able to do both of those things. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that's one of the main goals of the space is, yeah, a space to build solidarity between interconnected struggles. And we've had a lot of the Palestinian community come down, West Papua as well. Hopefully, actually, in the next week or the week after, we'll have the West Papua crew come down and do a documentary screening. Nice. Um, And, yeah, the Mapuche community as well have been around, which has been really nice. And to hear everyone share and, yeah, see that we're all finding the same fight yeah also a shout out to marisol from yeah. mujeres latino americanas on 3cr um that's right we, we're everywhere folks 3cr people are everywhere um i was wondering if there is anything that you wanted to share for people who have never been down to camp sovereignty so far are you staying there permanently like are there is there a campsite set up there should people be prepared to stay for several days or just to drop in and out how how do you um, how do people tend to engage? Like, what are the different ways people can engage? Um, I guess maybe I'll do it like how much time you have. Yeah. Um, I think if you can only drop in, I would recommend coming for the ceremony, the sundown ceremony. Um, again, that's around eight thirty every night. Um, and if you want to come for dinner as well, um, we have like amazing crews every night of the week that are providing food for everyone that's at the camp. So. Yeah, maybe like seven, come for dinner, stay for the ceremony. Um, you're more than welcome to stay over at the moment. 
um, swags are the way to go um, just until the meeting with the council happens and we see how those how that pans out mm-hmm. um, because we did have tents and then we couldn't have tents. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, you, you're welcome to stay as long as you like or as long as you have capacity to there's always there's always things to do um lots of tasks um yeah just like upkeep cleaning doing leaf collection for the ceremony um organizing events uh yeah there's so much to do uh yeah yeah well i mean people should get stuck into it if um if you can only come down on your lunch break during at, at work um get down there um yeah, I mean, it does sound like this is an amazing space to sort of revitalize like anti-colonial political community in um, in NARM. So it's 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 a it's a privilege to witness this happening and um, yeah, encourage people to get down. Is there anything else you wanted to share before we wrap up? Um, yeah. So today, Uncle Robbie and Kieran will be meeting with um, the Melbourne City Council to discuss the demands and so we're going to go down there to support at 9:45 at uh yeah in front of Melbourne Town Hall if anyone out there wants to come and support we'll have a camp sovereignty banner and yeah we'd love to show it's just going to be like a peaceful show of support um for them going into the meeting and hopefully bring some good energy and hope that it all goes well yeah yeah at oh actually one last, actually, Inez, do you want to? No, I just had a clarifying question. I know it probably is very silly, but is it 9.45 a.m. or 9.45 p.m.? <laughs> yes, 9.45 a.m. That makes sense. <laughs> just yep, wanted to sorry. clarify. <laughs> My bad. So, no, no, no. Right after our show. Um, yeah, I just also wanted to comment um, in closing maybe on the importance of having this sort of ongoing occupation of space and redefinition of the space of so-called King's Domain because that was another really important part of the original iteration of Camp Sovereignty and it's now um, sort of purpose in re-establishment as well is about a reclamation of space and a redefinition of um you know, that site as a site of colonial commemoration to, you know, remember that that is a place where people are buried. It is a sacred place for Aboriginal people in NARM. And it's an important site for a real deep consideration about the nature of ongoing colonization in this place and the need for that to be continually subverted and resisted in visible ways like Camp Sovereignty. Um, so, honey, thank you so much for taking the time to to talk about this and, um, yeah, encourage people to get down to Melbourne Town Hall at 9.45 a.m. Uh, to show solidarity with Uncle Robbie and Kieran from Black People's Union as they meet with the Melbourne City Council to discuss uh, the demands of camp sovereignty and its ongoing presence at so-called King's Domain. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. The new Climate Action Radio Show will surprise you. Well, first of all, I'm not a believer in global warming. I'm not a believer in man-made global warming. 
global warming. And so you'll hear voices from all around Australia and overseas that are taking all types of climate action, whether it's stopping coal and gas, whether it's building a new model of society, or whether it's just sustaining you in the grief you may feel about the climate destruction we're facing. And in that spirit, here's a poem by Rumi. Stop, take a breath, for you are drunk, and we are at the edge of the roof. This is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family, and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. And now we'll be going to our next track, which is Charcoal Lane by Uncle Archie Roach. And here it is. Side by side, we walk along to the end of Gertrude Street. And with top and mustard for a quart of wine. Pick up then. Right or wrong, in the cold and in the heat, we cross over Smith Street to the end of the line. Then we laugh and sing, do anything to take away the pain, trying to keep it down as it first went down. In charcoal lane Spending young And telling jokes Now the wine is tasting good Cause it's getting closer and closer To its end Have a sip And roll some smokes We'd smoke better maids if we could But we just made do with some city street blend Then we'd all chuck in and we'd start to grin When we had enough to do it again But if things got hard then we had to buy a charcoal lane 
Up Gertrude Street, we'd walk once more with just a few cents short. And we'd stop at the builders to see who we could see. Then we'd ride around until we scored a flagon of Mac Williams Port. Enough to take away our misery And we'd all get drunk, oh so drunk And maybe a little insane And we'd stagger home, all alone And the next day we'd do it again Have a revival in Charcoal Lane I'm a survivor of Charcoal Lane And that was Charcoal Lane by Uncle Archie Roach. And I think a really lovely way to wrap up the show for today, thinking about um, just the the textures and um, resonance of Aboriginal people in this place. Um, And yeah, uh, just always, always beautiful to hear that song. Um, So Inez, do you want to kick off our rundown? Yes. So first up, we heard from Wasim Razvi from Hume for Palestine who are a community action group demanding an immediate closure of HTA, which is a heat treatment uh, manufacturing factory in Camberfield that uh, makes components for F35s. And there's a rally tomorrow at 11 a.m. in Camberfield, and we'll have that in our show notes as well. And then we were uh, joined by Amber, who's a white queer trans person based in NARM, to talk about autonomous queer and trans resistance against the pinkwashing of cops, corporations and colonialism at Pride in the wake of a successful but brutally policed protest against the inclusion of Victoria Police in the annual Midsummer Parade last Sunday. After that, we continued the conversation that Fung began on this week's episode of Tuesday Breakfast with Larakia Gungarakan, Gurunji and French writer and performer Laniuk about the campaign to return Lee Point to Larakia Care. And finally, Honey joined us with updates from Camp Sovereignty and we heard a clip of Uncle Robbie speaking during yesterday's live broadcast of Bungel's Fire from the camp encouraging folks to come down and tune into Bungel's Fire from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. every Wednesday on 3CR 855 a.m. That's all we've got time for today on Thursday Morning Breakfast and we will catch you next week. Yes, and thank you so much for tuning in and taking the time out of your day. But we'll see you soon. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.